Welcome to our story. I'm so glad that you've joined us again this week. I'm really excited about this episode. My name is Matt Stone. I'm one of the pastors here at Dunwoody UMC. We've got a full house today. So sitting in the room with me right now is, of course, Phil Schrader, our senior pastor, and Calissa Dowderman, uh, another one of our pastors who works a lot in worship. And uh, we've got a special guest this week. Uh, Mark Lambeck is here. So welcome, everybody. How you doing? Doing great. Great. Good Good to to be be here. here. Thanks. All right. So this is our story. And really what we're trying to do in this podcast, just one more time, is we want to share stories of God's work in and through Dunwoody UMC. And part of our hope there is that not only will you hear a little bit more about what God is up to in our church, but that that'll help you to begin identifying even more clearly the ways that God is at work in your own life. So all that being said, I'm really excited about worship this Sunday. I'm excited for a few reasons. The first reason I'm excited is that this is Confirmation Sunday. And for some of you, you've been around Confirmation your entire life. But for many folks, I think there is some mystery around what Confirmation is. Phil, tell us a little bit more about what Confirmation is and why why I should be excited about confirmation, even if I don't have a, uh, a sixth grader being confirmed this year. In our tradition, confirmation is that time in a young person's life where they make firm for the for themselves the commitment that was often made by their parents or guardians at their baptism. Uh, we have parents who uh, will bring a child for baptism. But that is just the beginning of a process, and we believe that over the course of time in their lives, God is wooing them and beckoning them into a relationship. And as God beckons them into a relationship, they have the free will whether or not to choose that. And for us, it's not just an emotional experience. It can be, but it's not just an emotional experience where a person feels convicted and comes to the front of the church after feeling convicted after a rousing chorus or um, a particular uh, moving sermon. We believe that a time of education is important so that people can make an informed choice. And so we want people to be able to think about their faith. And so they go through a time of catechism, a time of learning about United Methodism, about what it means to be a Christian. And they're asked at a time, an age of accountability, if you will, if they want to make a decision for Christ for themselves. So they're confirming the commitment that was made for them in their baptism, or we just baptized a few of those kids uh, this past week, and they will make firm the baptism vows that were made at that point uh, for them to be confirmed. So it is an important part in the life of these young people Uh, They have studied, they have learned, they have interviewed pastors, they have tried to get as much information as possible, and now they are taking that leap of faith to confirm for themselves what God has already been doing in their lives in this process of wooing and beckoning. Yeah, what what I love about Confirmation in particular is that our church has made a decision to invest intentionally in the lives of our students in a, in a focused period of time, and we're talking to them about not only who, who God is and who Jesus is and who the Holy Spirit is, we're talking to them not only about the history of our church, but we're also talking about who they are. And, and it's an, an opportunity for them to make decisions about 
what will it mean for me to begin owning my faith? It, it's, it stops being our parents' faith, and it begins to be our own faith. Mark, I think this is a, a special Sunday for you. Tell us why. Absolutely. I'm the proud parent of uh, my very own sixth grade son who's being confirmed <laughs> uh, this week. And I want to take this opportunity on the record to thank the congregation and the clergy and the whole village uh, for nurturing both of my kids uh, through this process now. And it just is a special time for them to kind of, like you said, take ownership of of their faith and kind of live into the teachings that have been going on throughout their childhood. So yeah, it's an exciting week for the Landbacks. Awesome. Calissa. Yes. Were you confirmed as a child? Uh, I was confirmed as a 13 year old and you know what? I was baptized when I was confirmed. So that was a big day for me. Big day. What do you remember most about that day? Ooh, well, um, I, Remember, I was baptized at my uh, church in right outside of Dallas, Texas. And at the time, our church was building a new sanctuary. Um, and so we were worshiping in a local high school at the time. And what I remember is that our clergy were really nice to us and let us come into the incomplete uh, new sanctuary space they got special permission for us to come in, and we were confirmed there in that space. That would be kind of our spiritual home. It was really pretty cool, oh, and it made cool. yeah, it made us feel like we were special. Like we almost got a, a sneak preview. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I was confirmed also in Texas, and uh, the thing I remember most about confirmation was that I had a mentor whose name was Slats Wathen. Uh, which there's just not, I'm not convinced there's a better name out there. Slats Wathen uh, was a master rose gardener and gave me my first pocket knife. So uh, I think there was something about Jesus in there too, but Slats Wathen gave me a knife. And so that was really special. <laughs> uh, all that to say, uh, confirmation really is uh, one of the most special opportunities we have as a church to acknowledge what God is doing in the lives of our youth. I hope that I uh, hope you'll join us. Uh, if you haven't been to confirmation service before, I know you're going to be um, really inspired by it. If you've been before, then you know uh, how important it is for us as a community to show up and uh, and support uh, this next generation of followers of Jesus. So, I think everybody felt that the other day as they were able to participate in these baptisms and to be able to respond to your questions of them and David's questions of them about their responsibility. So I think it was a special time, even though it was on the ball field or on the parking lot, uh, there there was a, a special moment for people to be able to participate. And I do hope that from slats, you learn that every rose has its thorn. <laughs> oh, wow. I should have seen that coming. I feel like by now I should have seen that coming. Well, we're here to uh, talk about music. We are here to talk about music, uh, which I will be the first to confess is not my forte. Uh, and this is one of the things that drives my wife nuts because Margaret lo absolutely loves music. She knows the lyrics to every song she's ever heard, much like Phil, much like Mark, much like Calissa. I am easily the odd man out here. But the reason that, that we're going to talk a little bit about music today 
is because this is the end of, of our current series, Don't Let It Be. And if you followed along with us, then, then, then you already know this. If you've missed a couple weeks, I really want to encourage you to go back and listen to the messages that began with Calissa when she started us early in September and continued through the month of September as we've explored uh, a series that's dealt with how we as followers of Jesus deal with conflict. But, but one, of the, one of the background players in this series has been the music of the Beatles. We started there in the first week with Let It Be. And, uh, and this week we're going to end the series and a particular song is going to be used uh, by a band I think you've heard of called The Beatles. And, uh, and, and they sang a song called... We Can Work It Out. We Can Work It Out. And so that's going to be an important part of this service this Sunday. But I thought it'd be a, an interesting opportunity for us to pause and consider the role of music in worship. Because I think this is kind of a mystery for a lot of people. And so, Mark, this is why I'm really excited to have you here, too. Uh, really, all three of you have your, your expertise in this. But where I want to start is, how is it that we select music in worship? I think some people just assume we show up and sing whatever comes to mind. <laughs> That's clearly not what happens. Mark, give us a sense of how, uh, how, how we make these kinds of decisions in worship. Well, sometimes that is how it works, but usually we try to put a little more thought into it and... That's why I'm appreciative, appreciative of being part of such a great team where we can sit down and plan out uh, the scripture lessons and how we're going to kind of progress through that month to month or week to week or, and, and find some kind of enduring themes um, and uh, get to draw on such a rich heritage, especially in the Methodist Church of hymns and other songs that um, aren't as old, maybe newer songs. I'm reminded of the one of the public radio stations whose tagline is reminding you that all music was once new. I like that. Um, <laughs> I think Minnesota maybe. Um, anyway, so uh, one of the joys for me as a musician is kind of uh, digging into the extensive canon we have and trying to find texts and, and enduring melodies and uh, that, that can fit with the themes that we've chosen for the particular Sunday and to kind of see that all come together in, in, in a thematic way is, is exciting for me. Yeah, I think there's a complexity here that uh, somebody who's not a musician like myself might miss. And that complexity resides in the intersection of how singable a song is, the content of its lyrics, the musicians and instruments that are used, and the congregational understanding of music. And all those things swirl for me, and I don't, I don't know that how I would ever make a decision. Yeah, absolutely, I agree with that. In fact, as, as a trained musician, I, I, I look first at the, uh, at the musical aspect of the melody and the chord structure and, and even the logistical, how can we pull this off? You know, do we, are we doing worship in a parking lot with a guitar? Is there power out there? What can we do? Um, so, yeah, there's a lot involved. And um, to be honest, it's part of my uh, faith journey almost and to collaborate with, um, with y'all and others and to dig through the scriptures to kind of remind myself that, yeah, this is the text that, that's really the most important thing. And we have to somehow marry those two together um, or all those things together to, to kind of create the finished product. But for me, that's that's 
been a very meaningful part of my role is kind of finding, finding starting from the musical side because that's just my nature, and then also finding that text that that's perfectly suited for that particular day, I guess. And for a great example is uh, the other week we did "Let It Be," and we knew that the the hymn tune. Um, Come thou, uh, what's the, Calissa, what's that one called? <laughs> uh, it's um, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. The hymn tune is Heifredal. Heifredal, uh, that's yeah. right. And uh, I, actually, I think this is kind of a, a legacy thing that one of our uh, former associate pastors brought in, the idea of marrying Let It Be with Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Um, the, the tunes link up fairly well. And if you are praying to God in the time of Advent, asking for there to be a reality in which Christ comes to be with us and transforms the the world around us, like that, that links up pretty well with Let It Be. But we also knew that um, while Come Thou Long Expected Jesus is not necessarily exclusively an Advent hymn, it is one that people associate with Advent. So we picked another hymn that we thought um, had a similar feeling and a similar idea and could be set to that hymn tune. And so we did Love Divine, All Loves Excelling instead, um, thinking that that kind of did a good job of taking into account all of those things. Yeah, so, and this is where I wanted to specifically dig into worship this week. So a couple weeks ago, we did Let It Be. This week, we're going to do We Can Work It Out. I think some people out there might wonder, okay, wait a minute. These are Beatles songs. These are secular songs. They say nothing about God. They say nothing about Jesus. They say nothing about the Holy Spirit. What are these songs doing in worship? Um, and, and, and why would we choose to insert these secular tunes into a sacred context. Phil, how do you how do you think about that kind of decision? Well, I would first say that often, uh, if you'll listen closely, sometimes scripture is echoed, even a song that someone might call secular. Um, Mother Mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom, let it be. When Mary is confronted by God and is told that she is going to be the bearer of the Messiah, she says, let it be with me according to thy word. And so there's an echo of that scripture. But for me, I struggle with people putting together a secular and sacred dichotomy. Because for me, what Jesus did over and over again is he took that which was ordinary. He took that which some might call secular and redeemed it and reinterpreted it for use and for kingdom use. He told stories that uh, were about mundane, secular things and tried to show people the holy in them. So for me, I think the dichotomy is not secular and sacred, but sacred and profane. And you can take a text and make it profane, or you can also reset a text and turn it into something beautifully sacred where people experience the presence of God, and they're able to lift that as a hymn to God as part of their worship. And I think from my perspective, you know, how much better are we doing at our job of forming people's faith and creating for them a faith that they can carry with them into the world when we allow them to experience the things of their daily lives in a way that calls them back to think of God, right? If I'm, if I'm using a song in worship that you're used to hearing on the radio and maybe not in worship, the next time you hear that on the radio, you're going to think about that worship experience and you're going to think about what it t- 
taught you about Jesus or your experience with your neighbor. And that that moves us beyond just the the worship of the moment that we're together kind of praising God in this this hour that we spend together and into the worship that is daily life, right? Or the, the liturgy of daily life. And that's what I think what secular <laughs> music might bring to us that some of what we might consider sacred music doesn't. It never hit me more than during a Holy Week when I was in London and we went to see the Queen musical, We Will Rock You. Okay, I need to hear about that. And at the, at the end of the musical... There's one song that isn't played. And then across a dark black curtain comes these white letters saying, did you think we forgot? And then they go into Bohemian Rhapsody. And almost everyone there in the theater stood and sang that song from memory. And then we flew back across the pond. And on Sunday morning, we went to a local church here and my son and I and the choir were the only ones who seemed to know all the words to the Hallelujah Chorus. And it made me think, uh, how, how are the songs that people s- singing, uh, what, they mean so much to them. They're, they're so much a part of who they are. But Bohemian Rhapsody, they know all the words, Hallelujah Chorus, they don't. And so how do we get people to hear the songs of their hearts and reinterpret them through a sacred lens. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. I'm not sure that I'd ever really thought of it in this or through this lens, but it makes me think about so many of the lessons that Jesus taught. Right? What was it that he used? He what he didn't go to the temple or to the synagogue every time he wanted to teach a lesson. He looked out and said, "Look at the lilies of the field." He looked out and he said, look at this mustard seed. He looked out across the Sea of Galilee and said, see that city on a hill over there. So many times Jesus used, Jesus used things that were just ordinary and transformed them into something that was sacred and continues to teach us about who God is. It strikes me that's really kind of what we're doing uh, with the Beatles songs in this particular series is we are taking something that has secular quote-unquote secular origins, but its use in a sacred context transforms them into a teaching tool that, uh, that we hope will be powerful for you uh, as you experience worship this Sunday. Anything else on this before we press on? Oh, well, I, I mean, I do have one additional thought, and Mark might back me up a little bit on some of this. Um, you know, as we talk about figuring out how we bring music into worship, um, I, you know, I, I think that question of sacred secular or, you know, sacred profane doesn't come into my head nearly as much as, um, like, is this something that we can participate in together? Um, whether that means, can we all sing this together? Is this something that we can all sing? Um, or is this something that is going to have an emotional impact on us together? Might this bring us back to a, a place and time Um can it help us feel something? And I think that that for me is like the biggest role of music. Music, for, from my perspective, music exists in worship because it can help us experience God and community and just like our 
selves and emotions in a way that the spoken word cannot, right? And so that's why we have instrumental music and sung music. It's why we have a combination of different styles of music because we know that different things speak to different people. And it's why we're constantly balancing, okay, well, maybe this week we should have Amazing Grace because we know everyone knows that and it's going to mean something to them to sing it. But maybe we also really want them to hear this other text that's in another song. Um, you know, when when you when you experience any worship service, um, certainly one here at Dunwoody, I think it's important to remember that we are not making choices based on, oh, well, this is what I like. This is my favorite. I'm doing this for me. I think I speak <laughs> on behalf of myself and everyone around this table when I say we're thinking about how we can help you experience God in community. And so that means highlighting different things at different times. Yeah, I, I would I thank you for saying that. I was thinking that connection is the main point of focus for me with music. I think music connects with people on multiple levels in, in multiple ways. And I think, you know, bringing, for example, Let It Be or a Beatles song into the context of a worship service just kind of maybe makes your ears perk up a little bit and like why you know maybe ask the question why did they choose this and you know it kind of reframes that in a different context and if i can just throw out a little put on my music history nerd hat for a little bit there's been throughout the centuries there's been um instances of people taking profane or secular melodies from whatever time period popular music of the day and you know, composing them into a mass that they would celebrate at, at the in the Catholic service or wherever um, throughout history. So it's not a new phenomenon at all um, of kind of taking something that people are familiar with and they can really connect with. Maybe not thinking about it in the context of church, but then inserting that into a sacred uh, realm, which is real powerful to me. Yeah, and even some of our most beloved hymns, right? I think mm -hmm. of like Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee that, you know, is taken yeah. from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. But the original words to that are super not Christian. <laughs> They're a little <laughs> idealistic, but they are not from a Christian context at all. What, what we have done is taken this tune that meant something to somebody and people like to sing, and then we put Jesus in it. Mm -hmm. Over and over again. Well, <laughs> you heard it from Calissa. We need to stop singing Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. <laughs> that's, that's what I heard. exactly what I said, Matt. Thank okay, you so much. Good. But this is not about our preference. No. And that is the struggle that I feel so often in worship is that people want their preference not to be working toward the purpose. And so what I think we've tried to do uh, in recent days, and I think we always try to do that, but I mean, I've tried to push since I've been here, is to say the, the music is there for a purpose, not for your preference. And that's difficult because I have music that I prefer, but I'm, I've been trying to get us to pick hymns and, and by choosing our scripture text far enough in advance and by planning together, that allows these excellent musicians that we're surrounded by here to find uh, hymns, to find uh, anthems, to find music that move forward the purpose of the worship service, not anyone's preference for one type of music or another. Yeah, purpose over preference. I like that as a guiding kind of principle, not just in worship planning, but really in 
worship experience, right? When I come to worship, right. what I need to be thinking about is the purpose of this morning rather than my preferences in the midst of the day. That's helpful. So as we make our transition now, uh, I want to spend just a couple minutes on this particular Sunday. Phil, tell us how we're going to draw this series to a conclusion. It began with Calissa at the beginning of September. We've been in Matthew all three weeks of this series, but at the on this last Sunday, we're going to jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 10. Tell us a little bit about where we're headed this week. What would you do if I sang out a tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song and I'll try not to sing out a key. I get by with a little help from my, my friends. friends. My friends. And that's what that's what the scripture text deals with. Uh, Paul is speaking to his friends in the church there at Corinth. And he speaks to them and he wants them to seriously hear what he has to say. And I love the message paraphrase. This is not a translation. We've talked about that a little bit before in this podcast. This is a paraphrase of the original Greek, but I really think it echoes in a way that helps us to more fully understand. And he begins with this phrase, I have a serious concern to bring up with you, my friends. And that causes you to pay attention. And I think really what this whole series has been about is to try and get you you to pay attention to things that you might let be. And hopefully these words of scriptural wisdom will whisper to us in the times when we struggle. And he's dealing with a church that has divided itself up into different factions and to different corners. And everyone is saying, my preference is what counts. My way of doing things are what counts. You know, I joined the church back when Melton McNeil was the pastor. And I remember when Melton was here. Or I joined the church when Wiley was here. And it's all about what we're comfortable with. And Paul comes in and says, has the body of Christ been divided up into little pieces so we can each get a relic all our own? And uh, Paul is trying to refocus the people And I I think that uh, it's a helpful thing, whether it was a first century church or it's the church today. Yeah, that's what I was going to say too, Phil. There's a strange sense of comfort for me in this passage, because as we live into a season in history in which the church is, is struggling so much to find the same mind and Uh, the same purpose that Paul talks about in this passage as we struggle so much to find this thing. I'm comforted in a way that the church, even in Paul's day, struggled with the same kinds of things, right? This is not a new struggle for us. And the reason that's comforting is that if, uh, if they ran into this challenge in the days of Paul and they figured out how to make it work, then maybe just maybe there is hope for us too. That, um, that this is not the season that ends the church, right? As dark as it may seem, uh, depending on your perspective, this is not the season that the church ends. And Paul calls his church in Corinth to, listen to this, Paul calls them to, um, to, for all of them to be in agreement, that there be no divisions, that they be united in the same mind and the same purpose. I'm not sure that I've ever heard such a strong call to unity as that. But Paul calls him to it. Not the same preference. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. 
Calissa, what stands out for you as you think about um, as you think about Paul's admonition at the beginning of Corinthians? Yeah, I, I think that as I'm reading through this, I am kind of inspired by the to degree to which um, Paul is kind of encouraging them to move beyond their teams. I mean, you you touched on this a little, Phil, and and I think that you were touched. You've touched on it uh, as well, Matt. But I think when I'm thinking about this moment in American history and this moment in the history of um, the United Methodist Church in particular, but the church worldwide, um, it, it feels to me, at least, as if we have framed much of our life and our allegiances around the notion of winning, um, as if as if to hold ourselves up over and against someone else at all times. And, um, and that is just so antithetical to what Paul is, is asking of these communities. He's, he's saying like, your, your teams aren't a thing. Like it's not a, this isn't even a thing. It doesn't exist. You're making this up. Um, there's God, there's Jesus. That's the team. (laughs) So, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm taking heart from it because I find myself looking around in the world that I experience and just seeing so much division that isn't just kind of, I don't know, it doesn't seem trivial. It seems very based on kind of allegiance and winning, and it it scares me a little bit. So I, I like to think of, you know, a God that is working to bring us outside of that mindset through teachers like Paul. Yeah, I think Paul is absolutely opposed to divisions based on preference uh, and uh, divisions based on, you know, who you think is the best leader, right? He talks a lot Mm -hmm. about, you know, some of the people in this church have an allegiance to uh, Gaius and some of the people in the church have an allegiance to Apollos or Cephas. And, uh, and Paul calls them back uh, a few times to our primary allegiance, which is, which is to Christ. And that I think is the foundation that affords Paul the opportunity to invite us to a, to a unity that is so deep and abiding. So, So we shouldn't identify you know, I'm on Paul's side. Peter's my yeah. man. I'm for Apollos. I'm in the Messiah group. Yeah. And that's just how the Corinthian people had begun to think about themselves and their church based on their group they were in, not we are blessed to be part of the Christian church and followers of Christ here in Corinth. And we get to have wonderful teachers like Peter and Apollos and Paul who all help us to see more clearly who Christ is. Yeah, I'm reminded of, this is a a phrase that I I quote so often, and uh, uh, it's one that I I think a lot of you are familiar with as well. My paraphrased version of it is unity in the essentials, grace in the rest. There's a more proper translation. Phil, do you know what it is? Um, You know, in in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, charity, no, that's a little yeah. closer to Yeah, that's a lot closer to the actual origins of the phrase, but uh, I'm not sophisticated enough to remember that. So I like saying unity in the essentials, grace in the rest. And that's what this passage reminds me of. That, that seems to be the spirit to which Paul is calling 
his community and saying, look, the thing that we are grounded on is our life in Christ because it is, because it is Christ who gives us life, not any of our teachers, right? Not Apollos, not Cephas, not Paul. It is Christ who gives life to us and to our community. But as United Methodists, we are told to be, you know, as Christians, to be people of one book. But we're people of three books. We're people of the Bible. Some of us are people of the book of discipline. But we are people of the hymnal in a way that some other denominations are not. When someone comes to me and I ask them, what was your daddy's favorite scripture text so I can share it at the funeral? They'll say, oh, he loved how great thou art. (laughs) And I'll say, but what about a scripture text? How about amazing grace? (laughs) Or blessed assurance? And so it's interesting to me that as United Methodists, we tend to sing our faith. Right, Mark? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, such a great tradition there. Charles Wesley, I mean, I named my dog after him, for goodness sake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'd be honored by that, too. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people think it was John Wesley, but it was Charles Wesley. <laughs> well, I, I think that what you're getting at a little bit, though, Phil, is something that ties right back into the Scripture, right? Um, those factions are factions because their allegiances are pointing them away from a a, a separate purpose, Mm. right? But I think about, for example, uh, if any of you don't know, Mark and I sing in a choir together, and we all have our groups, right? We're grouped by what our skills are, where our voices lie, and when we're all working together for the common purpose of singing together and creating an experience together, we're able to do much more because we have not let our groups define our purpose. We've let our purpose define our groups. Mm-hmm. And um, that's good. And I think that that's what Paul is getting at here. It's what our hymnal does. You'll notice most of our hymns are split out into four-part harmony. And the Wesleys wanted us to sing that harmony because they knew that something special happens when we let our purpose to find our groups. Oh, that's good, Calissa. And and I think that's a, a pretty good place for us to end. Uh, we've covered some ground today. And what I'm most excited about is that everything we've talked about is going to come together in worship this Sunday. So confirmation is Sunday evening. And at both services, we're going to be talking about we can work it out. You'll hear that music and we'll be exploring this passage from 1 Corinthians that really is, is a, a wealth of advice and counsel for us in this particular moment in history. So I hope that you are as excited as, as I am and as we are about worship this Sunday. So that we can be a church as a witness to the world that lives in harmony. Yeah. What a great I, note to end on. Yeah, I see what you did there. Yeah. Oh, I don't. Tell me. Harmony. Oh, harmony. I get it. Music. It's not, I told you music wasn't my thing. <laughs> I get it now. We're going to be in harmony, in a, in a four-part harmony. I know yeah, what that is. We got it. Well, uh, I've revealed myself too much about myself. Friends, thanks for joining us this, uh, this week. Can't wait to see you all again next week. Thanks for listening to the Our Story podcast from Dunwoody United Methodist Church. Visit us online at dunwoodyumc.org. And join us for online worship every Sunday morning.
This Sunday, we'll also have outdoor worship at 8.45 a.m. in the parking lot or 6.30 p.m. in the ball field. We hope you'll join us and add your story to ours. 